TheYeshiva.net. Today's class is graciously dedicated by Joanne Gracious in honor of her husband, Brian, in tribute to his birthday on July 12th. And I want to wish both of you happy birthday. I want to wish you, Brian, happy birthday, and both of you many, many long and blessed, happy years filled with blessings and abundance materially and spiritually in good spirits in joy, health and happiness. Happy birthday. And thank you very much for your partnership and your friendship. But today we're going to discuss what is a very sensitive, emotional, important, vital, timely topic. Something that I know some of us or many of us struggle with, both from myself, from within myself, and many conversations and correspondence I've had recently and over the years with many of our sisters and brothers from different backgrounds and walks of life and persuasions and uh, locations. As I said, I even struggled with the title. Was the title is an appropriate title? Does Hashem, does God hate us? But I thought that maybe it is appropriate because people really deal with this and they often don't have the space to address it and they repress it or suppress it. And as somebody said yesterday in our class, quoting the title of a book, when you bury live emotions, they don't die. (laughs) So that's why I thought we should talk about this, at least touch on the subject. You know, all of these themes and subjects really reach into infinite places. We always have to have the humility of how much we could wrap our brains around and how much we can't. And the gulf between the two is quite limitless. But at least we can touch on the subject. And it begins with a fascinating and troubling and painful verse. Pasuk, in this week's portion, Parshas Dvarim. It relates to this time of the year, the nine days, the days leading up to Tisha B'Av, the day of the destruction of both of the holy temples in Jerusalem, one in the year 586 before the common era by the Babylonians, the second one in the year 70 after the common era by the Romans. In the Hebrew dates, the first one was destroyed in the year 3,338 since creation, and the second one in the year 3,830 since creation, 3830. The beginning of the book of Deuteronomy, the book of Dvarim, is Moshe Moses is speaking to his people. He's speaking to the entire nation. It's weeks before his passing. It's the first day of the month of Shabbat. He would pass away in five weeks, on the seventh of Adar. And he speaks to his people with tremendous affection, with tremendous love. He reminds them of who they are. He anchors them in their past he reminded them about their future, their role, their destiny, their vocation. And this is known as the book of Mishnah Torah, in which he will repeat the basic fundamental ideas and many of the mitzvahs of the Torah throughout this last book called Sefer Dvarim, the Book of Words. And in it, he recounts the history of the Jewish people over the last 40 years from the exodus of Egypt until now, when they are standing in the plains of Moab about to enter into their promised land, which will happen, of course, Two months later, under the leadership of Joshua, Yeshua, after Moshe's passing. And one of the key events that he repeats 
and he discusses in Parshas Devarim is the famous story of the morale, the famous story of the spies, which means we have the story recorded twice. The first time it's recorded in the book of Numbers in the portion of Shlach and Bamidbar when it happened, which is almost 40 years ago. Now Moshe is repeating the story, not when it happened. It's already 40 years later. The Jews have wandered in the wilderness for 40 years, but he's now repeating it weeks literally before his passing to remind them of the debacle and the catastrophe and devastation and the havoc it wrecked and the havoc what that the spies wreaked when they came back and dissuaded the people from entering into the land. Let's see one of the psukim, one of the verses that Moshe Rabbeinu uses here when he speaks to the Jewish people. So again, this is Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 27 and 28. If you open your source sheet, we have it there so you can take a look. Moshe Rabbeinu is telling them how he sent the spies to the land of Israel. He sent 12 spies. They came back with a report and with fruits. They told the Jewish people that the land was good. Over here, he doesn't get into the details of how they scared them and they terrified them. And Moshe tells them, you did not want to go. Instead, you flouted, you rebelled, you betrayed the plan, the blueprint of your God. And he continues, and I quote, Dvarim Perik Aleph Pasuk Chavzayin, Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 27. You sulked in your tent. And you said, It's because God hates us. He despises us. He loathes us. The word Sina is a very strong word which is usually translated as hatred, animosity. Because God possesses this fina, this animosity towards us, that's why he brought us out of the land of Egypt, only to hand us over to the Emirate people, to the Emirate nation, who will wipe us out. Because the spies come back and inculcate terror and dread in the hearts of the Bnei Yisrael, of the Israelites. So the Jewish people are saying, Moshe is telling them 40 years later, you, you went into your tents, you sulked in your tents, and you said, God hates us. And it's his hatred that motivated him to take us out of Egypt. If he wouldn't have hated us, he would have left us in Egypt. But because he loathes us and despises us, he took us out of Egypt so we could now go up to the land of Canaan, where you have one of the great tribes, the Emirate nation, and they will wipe us out. We'll die. Verse 28. What kind of place are we going up to? Anna means where? Where in the world are we going to? We're going up to a land, Eretz Yisrael, and are we going to be wiped out, obliterated, decimated? Our kinsmen, our brothers, the ten spies, have melted our hearts, saying to us, the spy said, we saw there in the land of Canaan a people stronger than us, more powerful and taller than us, great cities with, uh, with sky-high walls and fortresses, and we also saw the children of giants. This is what the spies came back to tell us, bringing back this terrifying report, which resulted in you sulking in your tents and saying how much God hates you.
Wow. Now, before we go further, I want to ask you all a question. What were the Jews talking about when they said God hates us? What did they mean? Remember, this is the generation that left Egypt. They have been enslaved. They have been subjugated by the tyrant Pharaoh. They have suffered terribly. Their children have been torn out of their laps. Their infant children and drowned. They have been subjected to slave labor, to beatings, to wanton tortures and torturing and murderous, savage suffering. And then in an extraordinary, miraculous display of God's might, Egypt is struck with 10 plagues, after which finally Pharaoh is brought to his knees and he tells the Jewish people, go! And the Jewish people are freed. They are the ones who witnessed the 10 plagues. They witnessed the splitting of the sea when they were caught between a rock and a hard ball. They were the ones who were starving in the desert and they watched the manna fall from heaven, feed them. They were the ones who were thirsty in the desert and they watched a rock emit water. They were the ones who watched the clouds of glory surrounding them. And then Moshe sends the spies to the land, the promised land. It, they come back. They inculcate fear in the hearts of the Israelites. The Israelites says, we're not going. And God said, okay, you'll stay here for 40 years. It's a funny thing. We once spoke about this at length, that they actually got what they wanted, right? Talk about a punishment. <laughs> you don't want to go, you won't go. They stay in the desert <laughs> and they get everything. Rabbeinu Bechaya writes, you would think God is so angry at them, you know, he'll stop some of the amenities. No, 40 years, mama every day, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. The Ritz-Carlton and the Hilton doesn't give you such service. A six-star hotel doesn't give you such service. Divine laundry, divine everything. You have Moshe, you have Aaron, the best teachers in history. Clouds of glory protecting them, a rolling stone giving them water. <laughs> a punishment. Nope. They, they, they lived in the desert and then they passed away in the desert, the generation that left Egypt. Yeah, this is fascinating. So now these people who are fr- frightened to go into the land of Israel, they don't only say we're afraid we're going to die. Suddenly they're saying... God hates us. Now, here's an interesting thing. This detail is not said the first time around. When the story happens, it says that the Jewish people all wept. They raised their voices and sobs. They spent the whole night weeping, worried and terrified that their wives and their children would be slain by the sword of the enemies if they tried to conquer the land of Israel, Eretz Yisrael. But it doesn't mention in Shlach, when the story is told for the first time, that they said that God hates us. It's only now when Moshe repeats the story, four decades later, does he insert this incredibly powerful and intense emotional detail that you guys sulked in your tents and you maintain that God hates you. Why doesn't it say the first time around when it happened? And what? how could they justify such a statement? God took us out of Egypt because he hates us. Really? Everything that you saw was a display of hatred? Yes, you're facing now what in your eyes seems like an overwhelming situation. We're going to go into the land of Israel and you're afraid to die. I got it. So does that really mean? So that's, that's a fear that has to be addressed. But suddenly they look back and they say, everything that happened with the exodus of Egypt was all about hatred. 
How do you how do you explain this? One way of explaining this, and this I heard once in a class from a great teacher in Israel. His name is Rabbi Yeshua Shapiro, Rosh Hashiva of Ramad Gan. And I once heard a class of him, and this is what he suggested. It resonated, and he shared a story. There was once a father who was very tough, extremely tough with the kids. He disciplined them with an iron fist. There was very little connection and attachment and a sense of safety and security. These children did not have the four S's, safe, secure, soothed, seen. And what happened was, as one of the boys got older, he became alienated from his father. He left. He left the home. He didn't want to have to do with them. The second child grew older, and the same thing happened. And the third one as well. And at this point, the father broke. And he went to a pedagogue, a great pedagogue, an educator. And he said, what, what happened? What did I do wrong? Why? I, I was just trying to be a father and educate them and turn them into mention and do the right thing. Why did they all leave me? And they left Judaism. And the man said to him, well, maybe you have to uh, change your methods. You know, you failed. You made a mistake. You probably did what you knew how to do with the tools that you had, and you did the best job, but maybe you can, but you have to realize that maybe this was very, very wrong approach with your children. And he taught him how to change his approach and to try to develop connection with his children and, and respect them and uh, make them feel heard and make them feel understood and make them feel valued. And that's what he started to do. He changed his entire attitude and his entire perspective. It was not easy for him. He had to work on himself to really, you know, redo a lot of his own software, hardware internally and not respond instinctively based on his own fears and his own issues and his own challenges. And once when his father was doing it, one of the boys responded to him very harshly. He told them what a terrible father he is and what a difficult person he is and how much he suffered under him. Instinctively, the father wanted to lash out, but he was guided by his mentor to accept it, to be understanding, to be sensitive to what the child is going through, to realize that this is not a betrayal of his respect, but rather, rather a child expressing his own pain and difficulties and things that are unresolved in him. So he was quiet. And he tells this child, please, you can share more of this with me and more of this with me. You don't have to hold back. The child shares more and the father still shows restraint and he still is loving and connected. And the kids are, are, <laughs> are surprised because they didn't expect this. So the next day, another child you know, lashes out and expresses how painful and dysfunctional this home is. And now it's getting even more harsh and more harsh. And the father is holding himself back and accepting it with his grace and listening to it. And then the next day, the third child really lashes out. And he gives this father two hours of musr, telling him how repulsive the behavior was. 
and how disrespectful and how abusive and how dysfunctional and how insensitive and how inhumane and how his heart and soul was destroyed and how much recovery he needs. The father goes running back to his mentor. He says, I don't understand. I don't understand. I never heard all these things from them growing up. And now that I'm so loving and I'm so respectful and I'm so embracing, now suddenly they're attacking me in ways that they never did. What you told me that by being nice, they're going to be nice. And now I'm being so nice. And they are so resentful towards me. And his therapist looked at him and said, let's think about this. You think they're criticizing you for being kind? You think they're criticizing you for being loving? You think they're criticizing you for being attached to them? No. All the years that they couldn't say anything, that they bottled everything up in their system, now it's coming out. All those years they couldn't say a word because they knew that the consequences would be far worse. And therefore it was a survival skill. Just hold it inside and let it simmer inside of you, whatever it does there. Because as we said, emotions that are buried alive don't die. But now they see that you change somewhat. And they had to tread slowly. In the beginning, they didn't fully trust it. They thought you're going to go right back to default mode and holler at them and penalize them and, and punish them and strike them. So they tread it carefully, but now they see that you're actually present and you're listening to them. So all the pain of so many years is coming out. All the trauma that was not dealt with. The Jewish people have been taken out of Egypt. They have seen a tremendous display of kindness and of miracles. But remember, for 210 years they were in Egypt. And for 86 of those 210 years, they suffered miserably. And what did they do with all that suffering? What could they do? They were in a situation where they couldn't express themselves. Who are they going to express themselves to? Parai. They tried to ask Parai to lighten the burden. And what did he say? He said, you're lazy. I'm going to increase the burden. They suffered silently. They cried out to God. They wept to God at last. Now they were liberated. As they were liberated and they saw this kindness, suddenly everything that was bottled up for so many years came out. And they said, you hate us. Now I hate you. Look what I did for you. All the trauma, all the pain that was there, all the previous years could come out now because they felt God's embrace. They felt God's love. They felt safe to say this. Why now? Because right now they were faced with a new enemy, Knan. And therefore, they went right back to that default space of trauma. Which means, they say it about, let's say, in, in, in marital therapy, this is, a, this is a frequent theme. You know, what is the status quo of the relationship? You know, sometimes you'll see that husbands see us, will watch their wives do something or say something, or wives will watch their husbands say something or do something, and they will attribute to them meritorious value. They'll, 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 they'll judge them favorably. They'll say, oh, he must have meant well. She must have meant well. Sometimes it's the other way around. What does that depend on? 
What does it depend on if you judge your spouse favorably or not? Do you know what I'm talking about? Do the men also know what I'm talking about or only the women are nodding? You know, sometimes you see your husband say, you hear your husband say something and you say, oh, you know, he's so interesting. He's so cute. He's a little eccentric. You know, that's why I like him. And sometimes, you know, he hates me. The other way around. Sometimes you hear your, your wife say something or you see her do something. It's like, you know, she's so sweet. She's so sensitive. No, she hates me. She knows I hate it. What, what does it depend on? What does it really depend on? So you'll say, well, some people are nice and some people are not so nice. Some people give their spouses the benefit of the doubt and some don't. But you know that's not true because your spouse is a very kind person and they still don't give you the benefit of the doubt. It does not have to do with that always. Sometimes it does have to do with it. It has to do with what's the general feeling of the relationship. If the general, this is so important, if the general feeling is positive, if we feel close, then even if I see something that appears to be really, really disrespectful or really hurtful, my instinct is going to say, you know, I'm sure they mean well. And I'll clarify it. We'll have a conversation. And instead of being accusational and building up this inner resentment, I'm going to give you the benefit of the doubt. And in a curious, inquisitive way, I'm going to ask you, what happened yesterday at the Shabbos meal? Or what did you mean when you said this today, you know, when we went on a walk? Or (laughs) or why did you do what you did yesterday? Because I want to tell you how I felt. And probably it will be cleared up. But if the general feeling of this marriage is he doesn't like me, she doesn't like me, we're just not close, we're not friends, then my go-to place, what they call today my neural pathways, will take me down a negative course. He despises me, he dislikes me, she loathes me, he hates me, and that's why they said that. It has to do with where my mind is. This is what happens here. Understand this. The Jewish people are facing now the report of the spies that there's something very serious going on. So they go back there, go to mode. God hates us. He hates us. All the, all the resentment, all the pain that was buried for so many years now comes out and they feel that it could come out because they're, they have been emancipated. They have been liberated. The liberation of Egypt is not just geographical. It's psychological. It's emotional. You're allowed to talk. Slaves are not allowed to talk. Free people are allowed to talk. They're allowed to communicate. So they communicate. But what do they communicate? They communicate the trauma of so many years of feeling abandoned, of feeling rejected, of feeling lonely. This is a classical case of what we call today trauma. So even though God made all these miracles, but my default mode, my go-to place emotionally, psychologically is, you don't like me. You don't like me. But you, I took you out of Egypt because you don't like me, you took out of Egypt. All those favors you did for me, it's because... You know that when I go out of Egypt and I'm going to go up to the land of Canaan, I'll be wiped out. Wow. Do you understand what we could learn from here, how people think? I can take you out of Egypt. (laughs) I can give you the world. I can feed you. But if you are internally overtaken and dictated and you are overtaken by trauma, 
It's the trauma that rules your thoughts and your visceral reactions. Then the favors I do for you, not only don't they prove that I love you, they become part of your proof that I hate you. This is so important to understand what happens in people's minds. It's not, it's not about judging. It's about understanding with compassion. Because they were so many years in oppression, because they were suffered for so many years. So finally, when they're free and they can talk, like those children who can talk to the father, all the pain comes out. And now, when there's a moment of doubt, did my wife mean well or did my wife not mean well? Did my husband mean well or did my husband not mean well? My go-to place is, he hates me. He hates me. Look, look at this. I'm going to the Emirates. I'm going to be wiped out. But look what happened yesterday. Look what happened before yesterday. Look what happened last week. Look what happened a month ago. Look what happened two months ago. That was all to bring me to this moment where I'm going to be killed. And Rashi, quoting the Sifri, says it. Rashi quoting the Sifri, it's an incredible Rashi, and I'm going, to, I'm going to share it with you. Rashi says here, the Jewish people said, Besinas Hashem, my son, who God hates us. Really, he loves you. But you have a hatred to him. Marshall had yet it's like people say, What you feel about the one who loves you is what you think he feels about you. And what he's really saying is the Jewish people have an unresolved animosity to God. Something that's unresolved and that's very deep, maybe from those years and years and years in Egypt. Something that's unresolved. They have these very deep feelings of negativity, of toxicity. And it's coming out. And it was never dealt with. And therefore, they're sure, of course, God hates me. What you feel about me is what you think I feel about you. You think I am just projecting to you what you feel about me. It's like, again, that both spouses where, where the husband or the wife looks at the other person. And I really feel you don't like me. You don't trust me. You don't love me. You don't cherish me. And then there's always confirmation. It's called confirmation bias. Oh, you said this, you did this, you looked here, you looked there, you took the phone, you made dinner, you didn't make dinner. This happened, we went here, you, 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 you told your sister this, you told your mother this. There's always confirmation that what? That you don't like me. <laughs> and because you don't like me, that's why you did this. But what is it all based on? It's all based on, on my own inner experiences, and it may not even be you. It may have been my own go-to mode because of my own trauma, my own pain, my own feeling of unworthiness, and now it's just being confirmed again and again. Wow. So now you would think we're just talking about then. Let's now go. Let's now go one step further. Okay. Go back to your source sheets. We come now to another verse completely. And this takes us down the road of Jewish history. We are now going from 40 years after the exodus of Egypt. They're about to go into the land of Israel. They come into the land of Israel under the leadership of Yahushua. 
and around 800 years later, 440 years after they enter into the land, Shloim HaMelech builds the first base, Amikdash, the first temple that stands for 410 years, and then it gets destroyed by the Babylonians. And one of the, one of the prophets who lives during that time of the destruction of the first temple, as I said, in the year 3338 since creation, Gimel Allah from Shin Lamed Ches, Shilach, it's the year that God sent us out of the land, is Yirmiyah Hanavi, Jeremiah the prophet. So let's see the Pasuk in Yirmiya. Take a look. Yirmiya, Perik Yud Beis, Pasuk Ches. Hoysali nachalasi ke'arye v'yar. Natsna alai b'kayla al-peis neisiyah. My own people acted towards me like a lion in the forest. She raised her voice against me. Therefore, I have loathed her. Wow. So Yirmiya is now describing the word of God about his feelings towards his people. My people, the Jewish people, became like a lion in the desert, in the forest. And you know the lion in the forest, when the lion sees an intruder, when the lion smells or senses an intruder, the lion roars in order to inculcate fear and to display dominance and to show you who's boss. So he says, The people raise their voice against me, against Hashem, like the lions threatening the one who's coming to control them. Like, God, get out of our lives. He says, therefore, therefore I loathe them, I despise them. Come to Medrash. And the Medrash says, what does it mean, Nasnalai B'Kaila? They raised their voice against me. What is this referring to? And the Medrash says, it's referring to what happened at the sin of the spies. Because it says there in Chumash, in Parsha Shlach, it says, after the spies came back and gave this terrible report, it says, Vatisa kol ha'eda vayitnu eskoilam, vayifku ambalailahu. The entire nation raised their voice, and they wept that night. Which night was it? Says the Gemara in Tainitz Chavtesa, was the night of Tisha B'av. The spies were sent on the 29th day of Sivan. They came back 40 days later. It was the night of the 9th of Av, and they wept a whole night. Ultimately, this would be the night of the destruction of Tisha B'av. So the Medrash and Parsha Shlach puts these two verses together. God says in, through Jeremiah, they raised their voice against me. Which voice? It's that voice during the times of the spies when it says, here it says, that voice. What did they say about me then? They said about me, God hated us. God hated us. He hates us. That's why he took us out of Egypt. He says, Al-Kain And therefore, they're experiencing me as hating them. They told me then, I hate them. And that became their experience, that I hate them, that I despise them, that I don't like them. Al-Kain therefore I loathe them. So the Medrash in Shlach, in Parshish Shlach, connects these two. That the Bekoila, the voice that they raised me is the voice by the spies. And that's the voice that he says that caused the sinah, the rejection. 
which is fascinating because in both cases, they're talking about God's hatred to them. Over there they say, God hates them. And God here says, that's indeed what's happening. What's the connection? It goes one step further. The Eimek HaMelech writes, one of the great Kabbalah works, Reb Naftali Hirtz, he was a student of the students of the Arizal. And he says, the first words of lamentations, one of the first words of lamentations, you remember? Eicha yashva vadad, Eicha yashva vadad, Ha'ir rabasi'am. Alas, how a city of such great multitudes of people sits in solitariness. Eicha yashva vadad ha'ir is the acronym of the word eva, which means hatred. Aleph, yud, vez, hey. Eicha yashva vadad ha'ir is Aleph, yud, vez, hey. It's the acronym of hatred. So the Emek HaMelech says that it's the fact that the Jewish people said that God hates them. Eva, he hates us. That ultimately comes out in the voice of the lion in the forest against Hashem. You hate us. Get out of my life. You despise us. You loathe us. And that results in the Eicha Yashma Vadad Ha'ir, in the Eva, in the hatred that they're experiencing. It results in the destruction in Tishabov, which happens the same night when the spies came back, when the Jewish people really felt that God hates them. So this hatred that was unresolved then continues, which now brings us to the next point. It's a fascinating phenomenon that as Jewish history continues and the exile continues, but the Jewish people are coming closer and closer to Geula, to redemption especially in the last few centuries, we have seen the greatest assimilation of the Jewish people. And in many ways, the greatest alienation of our people from Yiddishkeit. And even today, post-Holocaust, when there was a Jewish renaissance and a rebuilding of Jewish life in Israel, of course, and in the whole world, communities have sprung up in so many places new centers of Jewish life and schools and synagogues and community centers and all types of programs, a real renaissance and rejuvenation of Jewish life in Israel and in so many parts of the world, still the majority of our people experiences itself as assimilated, including marrying out and including a sense of alienation by most of the Jewish people in one form or another. How does one explain this? How does one understand this? Close to the Geula, as Jewish history winds down and comes closest to redemption, and yet a lot of alienation, this started to happen a few hundred years ago. It began with what they called the Enlightenment, which began at the end of the 1600s, the early 1700s, started in Western Europe and then traveled to Eastern Europe and then caused massive, massive assimilation of the Jewish people and alienation of Judaism. It continued with the various revolutions that swept away millions and millions of Jewish people. You had, for example, the Bolshevik Revolution, the Communist Revolution, that lured into its trap hundreds of thousands, millions of Jews. This is following on the heels of the Enlightenment, and you had what happened in communism with the Yevsekzia. It was other movements, secular Zionism, that also took so many, so many Jews away from Yiddishkeit, from Judaism. 
You had the First World War, which was right before the Bolshevik Revolution, and never mind the Second World War, which also caused so much dispersion and, and death and suffering and spiritual and emotional alienation. And today in the countries of freedom and prosperity, you have also mass, mass assimilation, and this is all getting closer to the gula. And one way of looking at it is, as the Jewish people are experiencing more freedom, more emancipation, as the walls of the ghetto came crumbling down and the Jewish people for the first time in history in the last centuries were given room to breathe, so it's just like what happened after the Exodus. When they were given room to breathe, suddenly they said, God hates us. And all the pain and all the trauma of exile came bursting forth. Now? You should have told, said that God hates you during Egypt, and they didn't say it. Because there was a general sense of fear. But when you're given room to breathe, and your father or mother say, express yourself, and suddenly everything that's inside comes out, and we have to deal with it. And it's very hard to deal with it, because when it's repressed, you don't have to deal with it. I'm a chaya, wonderful, you just move on. But when a person is given room to breathe and then they tell you what they really think of you and what they're really experiencing towards you, it's very, very difficult to deal with. Like the father says, I'm being so nice. Why are they all telling me how a miserable father I am? And the answer is because you're being nice and because you're maturing and because you developed yourself and because you became a little wiser and because you're ready to listen, they're going to tell you what they think. When they thought you're not ready to listen and you're just going to lash out with anger and fear and dread and terror, they won't tell you anything. So it's precisely in the generations when the Jewish people received more the gift of freedom, relatively speaking, that suddenly all of the pain and all of the trauma of 2,000 years of exile emerge in their full fury. So you could be terrified of this, or you can actually be grateful, because now it can be dealt with. And when we can introduce a new language, a new vocabulary of healing and love and recovery and acceptance... Ah, we cleanse our people and we cleanse the world from thousands of years of toxic trauma that came from so much pain. But the most important thing is to have compassion, to have respect, to have love. And I would say in many ways, this is what the Baal Shem Tev was trying to do when he came into the world. The Baal Shem Tev was born exactly in 1698. Literally, literally the same exact time that the winds of enlightenment in Western Europe began to infiltrate and ultimately take over Europe, which would lead to the French Revolution, which would lead to so many developments in history that would ultimately travel back to the East and would change forever the Jewish world, the Jewish mindset, the demographics in the Jewish world. You know, it's hard for people to know that just 300 years ago there was no such a concept as Reformed Jews, Conservative Jews, Orthodox Jews, Modern Orthodox Jews, Ultra-Orthodox Jews, Reconstructionist Jews, Renewal Jews, Begel and Lax Jews. A Jew was a Jew was a Jew was a Jew. Was Moshe Reform or Orthodox or Hasidic or Literature or Yeshivish or Conservatox? What was Moshe Rabbeinu? You don't have the title Orthodox Reform Conservative. There was a Jew. And there was one definition of a Jew. And there was one title for the Jewish people. There were Jews who went off throughout history. But a few hundred years ago, suddenly there became this whole new identity. What type of Jew you are? A response to all of the crushing pain and savage suffering for so many years. 
And the Baal Shem Tev, I think, in many ways, he came into the world with his students to teach the language of can we cleanse ourselves from the trauma of feeling hated, that we feel hated, and therefore he introduced such a new and powerful vocabulary of healing into the Jewish world that we still are struggling to really embrace and breathe in and live by. But that's the tickle. That's something we must deal with because it's inside. And when does it come out? It doesn't come out in times of fear. When that child is, you know, somebody once, I was once at a parenting, uh, at a parenting workshop. So the woman who spoke, uh, somebody asked her, she said, somebody said, you know, my son, one of, the, one of our congregants said to her during the workshop, one of my children always tells me that he hates me. Ati, I hate you, I hate you. And I don't understand why. So she said that in orphanages, children never tell the people who take care of them that they hate them. They're too frightened to say it. Because they know that if they anger the people who take care of them, they may reject them. So she said, it's good that your son feels comfortable enough with you to tell you that I hate you. Because he knows that no matter what he says to you, you're not going to stop loving him. Now, of course, if your child is always telling you, I hate you, you got to check that out. But he's talking about, you know, once in a while, he tells me, I hate you. He's a good father. He was just wondering about it. So in the time of freedom, the child can speak. The Jewish people can speak. And everything comes out. So when things come out, we, we shouldn't get terrified. We should realize that this is an opportunity to cleanse the system. It's also true in our own lives. When things come up in you, you know, pain and trauma and anger and resentment and hatred. It's an opportunity. It's an opportunity to clear it up. It's an opportunity to spit it out. It's an opportunity for tremendous self-awareness. You don't have to be afraid of any emotion and any thought that comes up in your system and any visceral reaction because it's really an opportunity for cleansing. As somebody just noted in the chat that my mother used to say, watch out for the child who seems to be doing well. <laughs> yeah. There was a father who called me the other day. And he has a beautiful, beautiful family. And one of his boys is struggling terribly. He's a boy in his 20s and he's struggling terribly emotionally. The father was crying to me on the phone. And he said, I want you to know. My kids were growing up. This kid was like the impeccable, flawless child. Everybody had only good things and praise and accolades to shower upon him. And this man tells me, but my father, the boy's grandfather, who's not alive anymore, once called me in and he said, be careful with this child. Because there's something simmering inside. And uh, he's doing things in order to get everybody's approval, he needs to be perfect, and he is being perfect. And I'm afraid when the imperfection is going to come out, what's going to happen? And he told me, I looked at my father, and I'm like, ah, what are you saying? And he said, today I realize how right he was. It's such a sensitive thing, and you know, you can't exaggerate this and dramatize it, and whenever you see a kid doing well, oh my God, let's run. <laughs> this is horrible. Can you, can you be a little destructive? You have to know, you know, take it with a grain of salt and know when it's appropriate to be concerned or not if there's different children of different dispositions. But this is, this is a point well taken. You know, sometimes when there's a fear of a child who was being hurt, a child being hurt, 
and hurt by somebody, maybe abused or molested or bullied or verbally attacked. Um, so, and the child wouldn't talk. So one of the methods they do in therapy is, you know, they'll set up a bunch of, what, a bunch of dolls in the therapist's office and give them names and watch the child's reaction to the doll. And sometimes the child will take one of these one of these dolls or one of these uh, clay structures of a person, you know, and break it and bite it and beat it up. And you could sometimes learn from that something that's going on. It may be an insight into the inner world of the child because with the doll, he's not afraid. With the clay structure, with the clay person, he's not afraid to attack it, to destroy it. And this is one of the methods that therapists sometimes employ in order to excavate some secrets. The point is we shouldn't be complacent. When things are going so well and perfect and the child is not complaining, it's not always because it's so perfect. It's because he may not feel the freedom or she may not feel the freedom. But suddenly when there's more freedom and there's more expansiveness, in other words, when the winds of Gu'ula begin blowing in history, when we're feeling the love, when we're feeling the compassion, when we're feeling the light of Mashiach beginning to blossom in the world, all of the old trauma comes out. Two thousand years of pain comes out. Eva. I feel hated. I feel unworthy. You hate me, God. Why do you hate me? What they cried that night, and even if when it happens, the Torah doesn't say it. You know why the Torah doesn't say it? Because they sulked in their tents. This was something they didn't even feel comfortable saying. This was something that still had to be repressed because they were still under the tyranny of Egypt. But this is something that they can already start thinking and talking about to each other in their tents in a secretive way. That's why the first time around the Torah doesn't mention it. Moshe only mentions it 40 years later, 40 years in freedom. The children now have to go back to what their parents never fully resolved. Moshe says, can we reconnect to a story of love? Wow, that's, this is heavy stuff. And that's what we're seeing. All the trauma we're seeing, it's not necessarily from what happened yesterday. It's also from what happened yesterday. It's also from what happened last year. But it can also be from 20 years ago and 50 years ago. And you know what? From 200 years ago and from 80 years ago and from 1,000 years ago. That's what epigenetics is teaching us. And now let's see what the Svasemis has to say about this. Two pieces. Svasemis, Dvarim Tokresh Membez, 1882. The Pasuk, not an easy year in Jewish history. You look it up. The Pasuk, Besina Sashem Isonu. Valzea Nemar Nosno Alai Bekoila Alkain Snei Siha. On this, the Pasuk in Yermia says, God says, the Jewish people treated me like a lion in the forest treats its enemy, its prey, or its foe. They roared against me. And therefore, Snaysia, therefore, I despise them. Therefore, I loathe them. I loathe them. God always thought about our goodness. 
God always loves us. Wow. But when they maintain that God hates us, his love is transformed, at least in our minds, into hatred. When I believe that you really hate me, you love me, you cherish me, but if I cannot see that, if in my mind I really believe that you hate me, that's what happens. At least it happens in my experience, even though your love may really, really never change. And deep inside, that love may, is maintained. But ultimately, if we say, the, the face that I show to the water is shown back to me. The face that I display in the mirror, that's the face I get back. The Basham Tev, you say, Hashem Tzilcha, God is your shadow. The shadow follows you. If I look in the mirror and I'm smiling, the mirror smiles back at me. If I look in the mirror with a sour face, the mirror shows me that face. That's what King Solomon says. The heart of one human being to another human being is like the face that I show you is the face I get back from you. So the Tfasem says, the two verses are not disconnected. It's unbelievable how you see the connections of the Torah. There's a verse in Dvarim that deals with the spies. Over there, the Jewish people, Moshe says, the Jews said, I hate you. I'm sorry, you hate us. There's a verse in Yermia where God says, I hate them. And in the middle it says, they raised their voice against me, which goes back to the spies because that's when they raised their voice. And that's when they said, God hates us. And here in Yermia, he says, I hate them. So he says, he loved you. But in your experience, you feel hatred. And when I feel hatred... This is what we call confirmation bias. Whatever you do, I see the hatred in it. That's what happens, actually. You start hating me. At least in my experience, that's the only thing I could see in you. And even if there's good things, nah, must be bad things are coming. And this is really because of a lot of pain that it sits in life, that, that the Jewish people experienced in life. He says, This positivity turns into a negative interaction. There is now negativity. Because when you feel that I hate, when you feel that I hate you, that's the energy you're going to get from me. You're going to get from me terrible energy. But from here we should learn the positive. Because the positive is always greater than the negative. Even in our exile today, when we were sent away from the table of our Father in heaven, we could still trust and believe our Father in heaven. That there is only love. And even if it's difficult, because we have so much pain that we have to deal with, be able to really trust, even if we cannot wrap our brains around it, that all of the chastisement came from love. As the verse says, Shlomo Melech says, in Mishle, Proverbs, The one who God loves, he chastises. He cleanses. And this faith, will transform it into love. When I believe you hate me, you hate me. When I believe you love me, you love me. I will experience the love. My attitude transforms the reality, like the face I show to the water is the face I get back from the water. So he says, 
this attitude that you love me, it creates a different dynamic. Suddenly I see the love. Suddenly I'm experiencing your love. Suddenly everything changes. You see it in a marriage all the time. If you really feel the other person cherishes you and loves you, then suddenly you're going to have confirmation bias. You'll see it everywhere. And even when there's a doubt, you'll give them the benefit of the doubt. It must be love. And you'll try to clarify it. You'll ask a question. So this Fasama says, just like when Jews believe that God hates them, that's indeed the reality they experience. Nepach l'sina. Fascinating. God doesn't say, I hate them. He never hates you. They cried about how much I hate them. They cried that night. Not so much like the, the lion roaring, get out of my space, God. You hate me. You want to kill me. You want to destroy me and my kids. From that, therefore, from that, they experienced my hatred to them. So what happens in the reverse? If you can recreate a narrative of love, and it's not so easy, it takes a lot of trust and a lot of faith, and it doesn't mean there's no pain. But it means that I realize that I can't wrap my brain around all of reality. It means that I have a humility in the presence of infinity and awe, and I don't know how everything is going to work out. And I certainly don't understand why everything happens. Just like the Jews couldn't understand everything they went through in Egypt. Moshe himself said, why did you do it? Moshe himself doesn't understand. But there's an element of trust. It's like when your mother, you trust your mother, you trust your father fully. And they may do things that you don't understand. You know, your mother takes you to the doctor, goes through a procedure, it's painful. And the child turns to the mother and says, why are you doing this to me? But the child who really feels attached will afterwards cry on the shoulder of the mother, seeking comfort from the person who was responsible for this pain. So he says, this very amuna, this very connection transforms the dynamics. In Pirkei Yavis, one of the qualities our sages talk about is to love rebuke. Literally, it means love constructive criticism. Don't run away when people tell you good things. Don't become defensive. He says the deeper meaning is means not just cherish rebuke. Realize that the rebuke is coming from love. Find the love in the Taitech. But there's one condition. You have to know that the one who is criticizing you loves you dearly. That's the key. If I don't feel that you love me, if I don't think you love me, if viscerally I feel your hatred, the brain won't be able to achieve a reverse experience. I have to be able to come to a place where I could feel your love. And sometimes the trauma doesn't let me do that. So this is a very powerful inner process of work where can I see the love behind the taichachah? Even when I'm experiencing rebuke in life, meaning I'm experiencing a challenge in life that's causing me to stretch. And I may not understand it, but can I trust that there's love over there? I don't have to understand it, but I can trust that there's love. But only if my baseline is, if my go-to reality, if my neural pathways are taking me down the, taking me down the highway where I really believe you love me.
and then you can embrace it and then it's completely transformed to love. The toitesa, the rebuke, the criticism, the pain, actually becomes transformed. Because what made it so painful, what made it negative is my resistance, my inability to really feel the love. When I feel the love, suddenly I open myself up to be able to experience the sweetness of reality and the sweetness of the person give, of the one giving me this reality. Somebody once shared a story that uh, there was an Israeli soldier and he, he was very mischievous and rebellious and wild and he was always fighting and butting heads against his commander. And at some point he just stopped listening to him. And it was really impossible because the commander was trying to run his platoon and, you know, I don't have to tell you that discipline in the army is paramount and it's, uh, it's critical in a, in a time of conflict and, 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 and an engagement with the enemy. With, without discipline, you could destroy everybody and everything. So uh, this was really, you know, coming to an impasse. It was just, there was no ability to continue this way. And you know how they discipline in the army. You got to do 50 push-ups, 100 push-ups, 200 chin-ups. Um, instead of going to sleep, you have to train for another hour. And at some point, the soldier just lost it, and the commander became literally uh, his uh, his his threshing silo. Uh, he mocked him, and he dismissed him, and he disobeyed him, and he created an atmosphere of rebellion. So he was imprisoned. You know, sometimes they imprison a soldier. He was imprisoned for three months. In prison. Uh, there was uh, there was uh, drug, there were drugs going on there. So uh, somebody was handling. So they put in a bug into the cell, so that the wardens, the people in charge, should be able to hear what's going on. So one day they hear this conversation between the people that are in prison, and everybody was talking about why they were put into prison. This was a military prison, so the soldiers were, you know really critical of their commanders and their super superiors who plunged them into the cell. And each one was more critical of the other, you know, how they've been bullied and how they're control freaks and they're not commanders, they're torturers, they're tyrants, they're dictators, they're despots. And then they came to this soldier who was new. He was put in for three months and this was his first day. And he says, actually, I have to say, my commander... Good guy. <laughs> he actually really liked me. And he tried so hard. He spoke to me for months. And even in the in the court case, in the court case where he was testifying about me, I could see that he cared for me. I could see that he loved me. I could see it. I could see that it was he was not taking this personal. He was really trying to do the right thing for me. I have to say that he really did the best he can. I was very impossible. <laughs> That's what he's saying. And they called him out and they said, okay, <laughs> you're free to go. You're free to go. Atta Sukkum, they gave him what's called Khanina. They uh, dismissed him. They freed him. Atta Sukkum to Rachin Siyed. So that's what the Svasemnis is saying. This person, 
he didn't respond to his commander from a place of deep trauma. He responded from a place of, of wholesomeness. And it's not easy. He said, you know what? There's something I have to work through. Yes, there's something I have to work through. You know, you have to be careful with this metaphor because not every situation is the same. And this is a situation where he, so to speak, betrayed the rules of the army and it became impossible. Life doesn't always work that way. But the point is, he had the ability to be able to see the bigger picture and not give up on the commander and say, he hates me, he wants to destroy me. He could look inside and ask not why the commander hates him, but what is my job today? What is my mission? What is my calling? Maybe it's not about hate. Maybe it's about something else. Maybe I don't understand what it's about, but it's not about hate. And you know what happens? When he does that, the commander says, oh, come out of prison. You don't belong in prison. Like, you get it. As long as he would think it's about hate. So now he has to go through this process of changing. The moment he realizes what it's about, I'm not, I don't want you in prison. I love you. I love you. I want you to live the best, amazing, most successful, superior life. I'm your biggest fan. I cherish you. I want you to be the best soldier in the world. I want you to flex your muscles, maximize your potentials, live life to the fullest, and seize the day. Carpe diem. And he can feel it. He can experience it. So then everything changes. It actually turns into love. It turns into love, not just in a theoretical way, in an abstract way, not just in a mindset, not just in their mindset, but in a very tangible way. You almost, you, you remove the lid, you remove the cover-up from what's happening. You remove the cover and you reveal that it's all really about love. So that becomes the visceral experience of it. This is the meaning of the verse, I'll kolp shoyim tachasa ahava. Love covers all sins. Literally, Shlaima Malik is telling us that bias creates the greatest blind spot. When I love you, I ignore all the mistakes. Sometimes it happens, people get into a relationship and they fall in love, and the romance causes them to eclipse their vision. And you don't see the flaws of the other person. Then they get married, and three years later, they're divorced. What happened? What happened was the crush caused them not to see what's going on. You know, when you love somebody, you're so biased, you don't see reality. You ignore reality. And when it comes out, it may be too late. But there's something much deeper. Al-Kop Shayim Ava means love covers all sins. All the sins, it's covered by love. He says, how can you reach love when there's so many sins? All the sins get covered over. They get removed through the love. They get removed. They get cleansed. Even a person who has made so many mistakes. But if you can experience the love and you can realize that all of the consequences and any punishment and any pain and any challenge and any rebuke, it's all love. God loves you infinitely and absolutely unconditionally. There's no negotiations about the love. 
then all the sins get cleansed, all the sins get covered up. Your experience of love will ultimately remove all the pshayim, all the transgressions, all the mistakes, all the sins. Why? Because when you're experiencing the love, when you, when you can open yourself up to the love, that's exactly what you're going to receive. And therefore the Pasuk says, Yeshaya says, Literally, it means, let's go and uh, debate. Let's have a debate, a conversation of Ikuach. Even if your sins are red as scarlet, they're going to become white as snow. He says, what's the connection? What he's saying is, I want you to be able to experience the toichicha, the rebuke, the pain you're having in life, and understand it not as my hatred to you, but as a process that is completely designated to help you. And then, even if your sins are like scarlet red, they're going to become cleansed. I'll call Pshayim Techasa Ava. Because when you can experience the love within every experience, then ultimately all the pain and all the toxicity and all the negativity is completely obliterated. It's completely eliminated. That's the Oyeves HaTechachas, when I could see the love in all the Teichacha, when I could see the love in all the Teichacha. So then the differentiation and the disparity and the alienation is completely removed. This is Tafresh Mem 1882. Let's do one more piece from Tafresh Mem Gimel, 1883. Wow. Chazala teaching that this is the cause of the whole Churban, of the whole destruction. The Jews felt that God hates them. And that's exactly what they saw, hate. This is the Korban. From here we have to learn, remember, positivity always exceeds negativity. If the power of hatred can wreak so much havoc, imagine what the opposite can do. When the Jewish people can embrace the notion that God loves them, even in the pain of exile. Umaminim and trust ki uchesed Hashem Yisbarach that the love never abated, it never ceased. Kamei shekasev eshayev Hashem yechiach. All of the pain ultimately is coming from love, even if I don't understand how or why. Lachen bnei Yisrael heimem medukayim ba'olam. And when you see the Jewish people in the world, and they're crushed medukayim. Remember, he's writing, he's saying this in 1883. The Jewish people are crushed in the world. It's not because they're hated. It's actually because they have a unique journey, a unique relationship, a unique vocation. This can become the key for Geula. Just as the opposite of it was the beginning of exile. What was the beginning of exile? My belief that God hates me. My belief that God hates me puts me into a space where I'm experiencing hate from God. In other words, I'm experiencing exile and alienation. 
But what if I could do the opposite? He says it's the key of Geula. If the key of Golis was that the Jewish people said, and that's in Parshas Dvarim, which is always read before Tishabov. Because that's Tishabov. That feeling that God hates me. And it comes out in Yermia where God says, I despise them. He says, what's the key of Geula? The key of Geula is believing in the love. Believing that you're worthy of love, believing that you're beloved, believing that God doesn't hate you. He's crazy about you. He cherishes you. That's Geula. That's the key, he says to Geula. God loved the Jews who were in the desert. He didn't hate them. But they changed that love into hatred by believing and maintaining and experiencing God as a hater. That's what happens. It gets to love is transformed. The very energy of love becomes the energy of hate. It's really the energy of love. When you're very close to me, and the closer you get to me, the more I feel that you hate me, all that closeness becomes negative energy. You know that, right? The closeness becomes negative energy. It's crazy stuff, but that's what happens. If you wouldn't be close to me, it wouldn't be negative. (laughs) I'm back to the metaphor in the marriage. The wife really loves the husband. The husband loves the life. One of them is traumatized. So the closer you get to me, the more you love me, the more I'm feeling you hate me. It's like, get out of there. You hate me. Get out of there. And suddenly all the love becomes hate. It's very, very intense, very deep. It gets transformed. So God, the Jews say, and suddenly in Yermia, a thousand years later, especially when one experiences rebuke for sin. Even though it seems like a penalty, it's a judgment, it's a punishment. It's how we accept it, how we experience it. You can experience it as negative, or you can experience it as love. And when you experience it as love, it becomes love. And it becomes love even in a very revealed and tangible way. Because you opened yourself up to the revelation of the love. The love was concealed in a very negative package because I wasn't ready for it. And when I can open myself up to the love there, then I can actually experience the love. And I could see it as love in a very revealed way. And he says, that's the beginning of Gula. Gula doesn't just mean that there'll be amazingly good stuff in the world. Of course, it means something deeper. That everything that we store as negative we're going to see in a new way. The love is going to come out. And we're going to see suddenly that everything was an experience of closeness. That's what Gula is. Gula is the ability to be able to look into every reality, to be able to see the love that flows from it, and therefore embrace it in a whole new way. Practically, how does a what what does a person do to be more consistent in being in that space? Let's say when you're davening or learning or doing more spiritual things, it's very real, like God on this connection. And then when you go into life, sometimes 
it's hard to translate. How do you make it more real? Like you don't forget, right? The same, like, like, like a spouse who doesn't forget about the security of their relationship. Great question. Great question. How do you live in this space consistently and not forget? And I think the answer is exactly like in a marriage. What allows a couple to continuously live in this space where I can attribute to the other spouse positive motives and attribute loving motivation to their words and actions, even if there's something difficult? What does it? And the answer is, you know what the answer is? The answer is the ratio of positive comments versus negative comments. Meaning, if during the day there's a ratio of four to one, four positive, one negative, that's not enough. I'm going to attribute negative motives to your words, and I'm going to say you hate me. In my heart, you don't like me. But if it's 20 to 1, then the baseline is going to be love. Some of the great marriage therapists who researched this said minimum is 5 to 1. Best is 20 to 1, which means for every negative comment, 5 positive ones. A negative comment could be just something that's dismissive, something that's denigrating, something that's critical. You know, you don't know how to eat. Your mother didn't teach you manners. Uh, why can't you make your bed? Uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> whatever, you know. And a positive comment could be anything like, you know, thank you for working so hard to support our family. And wow, what a nice toy. So that's a positive comment. When the ratio from positive to negative is powerful, what happens then the baseline is one of positivity. So I'm going to attribute positive motives. So now listen to this. Why do we say brachis every morning? Why do we daven? That's ratio of positive to negative. It's like God. God now gave me, God is controlling 70 trillion cells in my body that are all functioning. 70 trillion acts of love. 70 trillion acts of love. What's the ratio? <laughs> What's the ratio? 70 trillion to one. Got it? When we say blessings, when we pray, when we show gratitude, when we're thankful, when we become aware of the miracle of life constantly, we make a blessing before we eat. We make a blessing when we go out of the bathroom. The baseline is positivity. Now something difficult happens. I take it from a place of love. Exactly what we do in America. Yeah, when good. I speak about a ratio of 1 to 5, 1 to 20, it's, it's, it's not just comments, it's reactions. It's our reactions in different situations, positive reactions or comments or statements or expressions, even facial expressions, versus negative. A husband could be sitting uh, in the kitchen, drinking a cup of coffee, reading a book or a newspaper, whatever it is. I don't want to say on his phone, God forbid, but whatever he's doing. And, you know, his wife walks in or her husband walks in and they look at each other. They can smile and connect in a positive way. That's a positive reaction. When you have five to one or better, 20 to one, Everything changes. Then next week, 
when he makes a comment or she makes a comment or he does something, she does something, their go-to place is positive. But if it's the other way around, their go-to place is negative. He doesn't like me. He's not here for me. He's not interested in this marriage. She doesn't like me. She's suspicious of me. He's alienated from me. He's not interested. He's detached. She has so many issues with me. She despises me. She never really wanted me. He never really wanted me. That's where we go. Very important stuff. Very important stuff. Questions. You speak about the perception of the Jewish people that God hates them. Even the great miracles became a bias to prove that he hates them. For example, getting the Torah, getting the Ten Commandments, it made them shake. The first generation in the desert were maybe like Holocaust survivors. They couldn't take any more changes. They were in too much pain. Even when God reveals himself, it becomes too painful. Yeah, I hear you. You can unmute yourself and ask questions. I'm going to take a few minutes of questions. People have so many expectations from God. But you have to realize that his goodness is a gift. And he doesn't really owe anybody anything. That's how I see it. We have to remember to be humble and accept the gift of life. We don't own life. On our own, we would not exist. Very existence is a gift from him. And therefore, I think we have to be grateful for every moment. That's Ricky writing. Okay, thank you very much. Next question. This teaching reflects a deep truth in how we operate within human relationships. When it comes to God, it feels more out of reach to have that kind of reaction to pain. Almost like it's only achievable for a select few who live in complete alignment with their source. Is it possible for an average person to be in this space before the gaula comes? Wow. I think it's possible, but with two conditions. <laughs> Condition number one, you can't judge your initial reaction and become critical of it. You can't judge or deny your initial reaction and suppress it or repress it. That's condition number one. Meaning, when we speak about see the love inside of it, it doesn't mean that there's no pain. It doesn't mean that it's not incomprehensible. It doesn't mean that it doesn't sometimes feel so sad. It does. And you know what? That experience is part of the love. It's part of the relationship. We're not saying that if a person is feeling pain, they're not in a gula mode. Because if they were in a gula mode, there would be no pain. Everything would just be amazing. That's not what we're saying. That's not how you should take it. There are some very saintly people who can live in that space. But most of us don't live in that space, and we're not supposed to live in that space. Because if we were supposed to live in that space, then Tisha B'Av should be a day of dancing before Mashiach comes. 
And a person, instead of sitting shiva, God forbid, should start dancing. We don't say that. There are moments of tears and there are moments of joy. There's moments when we dance and there's moments when we cry. As it says in Ecclesiastes, the time to cry and the time to laugh. Time to speak and a time to be silent. So it's important to appreciate and respect the fact that part of the relationship is that there's pain. If I'm stretching, if I'm doing yoga or Pilates or I'm sitting with my personal trainer and he's causing me to stretch or to lift weights that are heavy, it may hurt. And it may really hurt. And I'm like, ow, stop this. And yet, on a deeper level, I could be very aware that this is not about somebody who's trying to kill me or hurt me or destroy me. It's somebody who's trying to stretch me to help me become the person I'm supposed to become. So I think the first prerequisite is to be able to accept the fact that sometimes it feels very painful and it's new and it's mysterious. And it's not something that just sits comfortably with me. And I'm like, yeah, this is the best thing that ever happened to me. No, on the contrary, the grieving is part of the love because part of the relationship is that you're giving me something that is difficult, that is challenging, that is causing me to stretch a lot. And that means I have to say goodbye to the old. And there's an element of grief. There's an element of of challenge that is very real. I think that's number one. And number two, I think it's accepting the fact that we can't always understand this. It's not like somebody who's working out with me in the gym and I clearly understand why by lifting this weight, it's going to help my health or by why stretching, it's going to help my blood flow. So over there, the connection between the pain and the results are very clear. In life, it's not that way. Sometimes there are certain things that are incomprehensible. They defy our imagination and you could just sit and say, why, why, why? Like, who gains anything out of this? We are people going to stretch from this. Where is the world becoming a better place? Like, who needs this? And those are good questions, and we don't have answers for that. We have to be able to accept that. And that's what amuna is. When you say amuna in the love, it doesn't mean amuna in the love. That the amuna in the love means that everything is clear and understandable. It's not. That's why it's called gullus. That's what it means. The love is eclipsed. The love is not seen. That's why you could feel that you're hated. There's a reason for it. The Jews are not crazy. There's a reason for it. Because when I'm looking at it, it looks so ridiculous, so absurd, so unfathomable, so unfair, so tragic, so painful. And we all know of such instances in our own lives or in our loved ones' lives or in friends or relatives or people who we don't know. You know, take the recent tragedy in in Surfside, Florida. How is anybody going to, how is anybody supposed to wrap their brain around this? You know, a family wiped out, parents killed, parents and children killed. You know, you take the Miran tragedy. Somebody just says, oh, you know, everything is so beautiful and it's all love and this, there's something off. There is a deep element of grief. There's a deep element of sadness. There's a deep element of pain. And people also experience anger. And people experience denial, and people bargain, and people grief. And then you can come to acceptance. And acceptance doesn't mean it's easy. Acceptance doesn't mean it's dandy. Acceptance doesn't mean I'm ecstatic. Acceptance means that I can go into a place and embrace the reality that I'm facing with maturity, with sobriety with a deep, deep 
faith and trust that there is love here, that I'm not being abandoned, that I'm not being rejected, that I'm not hated. And that's the key to Kaula consciousness. I hope I answered your question a little bit at least. Next question. What if I do despise God? What if I do hate God? And what if I feel that he does hate me? The Jewish people felt so, and I also feel so. After everything he did, what if I feel, though? I really feel that he doesn't like me. I really feel that I don't like him. Yeah, I get it. I get it. I really understand what you're saying. And there's a reason. There's a reason for it. You know, you suffered a lot. And uh, you've been through a lot. And you feel unworthy of love. You feel that he has something in for you. You feel that you're really, really hated. And therefore you hate him. You hate him because you feel that he hates you, right? And you're projecting. I was listening last night. I went onto a Zoom. A therapist did with Dr. Edith Ager from La Jolla, California. You know, she's the author of The Choice and The Gift. She was in Auschwitz. She's in her 90s. And uh, she was on for an hour and a half. She was ready to stay longer. It was at night. So I didn't know this till last night, that she's a granddaughter of Rebecca Eger. Her name is Eger. Her father's, her, her last name is Eger. And she's a descendant of Rebecca Eger. So that's amazing because Rebecca Eger was one of the great luminaries of Polish Jewry in, uh, in the 18th century. But there was an amazing thing she was talking about her experiences in Auschwitz. And she said, uh, I, w- I don't know how somebody could say this, but I'm just quoting. She said, I look at Auschwitz as a cherished wound, as a cherished wound. And somebody said, what? A cherished wound? I mean, she lost her family. She lost her parents there. And she herself came close to death there. And she said, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I could never make sense out of it. But I say it's a cherished wound because it turned me into the incredible person I am today. And she spoke about who she is. Now, what was she saying? She wasn't saying that her experiences were good and positive. What she was saying is, instead of focusing on how bad my life was or is, I'm going to focus on how I can use my experience to become a light in the world. And that's a choice we have to make. Sometimes my trauma doesn't let me even go to that place, but I have to be aware that there's something holding me back. And I think in your case, your hatred, your anger is coming from a lot of pain. There's a lot of pain there. And you need to be able to release it and then learn how you will be able to become a light to yourself and to the world by harnessing your pain into a strength and a contribution that only you could make. And it doesn't explain everything that happened to you. 
I don't have any explanations. But it gives you the ability not to react as a victim. I hope at least this addresses it a little bit. But it's a journey. It's a journey. You can't react to anger with anger. You have to react to your own anger with compassion. That's what I learned. Don't react to your own anger by getting angry at your anger. I know somebody who's a very, very angry person. But this person is also a good person. So what do they do when they get angry? They get angry that they're getting angry. You get it? They fight anger with anger. So they get even more angry. <laughs> they don't know they're doing this. But pointed it once out to the person. I said, the person said, yeah, I'm unaware. I'm, I'm so angry <laughs> that I get angry that I'm angry. So I'm now angry at me that I'm angry. So I'm even more angry. You have to listen to your anger with compassion. You'll be less angry when you can acknowledge that the anger is covering up pain and loneliness and you can have compassion for it. And then you won't have to be angry. Okay, somebody says as follows. In my experience, anger comes from fear. It comes from a place unknown. To neutralize that fear. In other words, figure out a strategy quickly. We need to have a cool head. That transformation takes a lot of internal strength, which the slaves of Egypt maybe had very little. Because to neutralize that fear requires very cool mind, and it's a very, very deep transformation. Thank you. Yes, Rachel, you can ask a question. Hi. Um, so my question is, how do I prevent or, you know, mentally maybe not to get angry at my kids when I tell them not to do something and they continue doing the same thing? Well, I'm not a parenting coach, so I, uh, you know, it's very hard for me to answer your question without uh, knowing all of the details. So I'm just going to answer from a very general point of view and general perspective. And that is, I think instead of the focus being on me, they're not listening to me. I think the focus should be more what is going on in their life, what is going on in their head, what is their experience. In other words, you be confident and safe in your own skin. Be confident in your own skin. If I'm the mother, I'm the father, right? And this is what I really want for the benefit of my child. Great. Now, if there's something going wrong, I want to understand what is happening in their mind. What are they hearing? What are they experiencing? What are their needs? What is going on inside of them? To put it differently, as a parenting coach once said, we don't need our children's approval but they need ours. <laughs> I don't need my child to always approve of me. My child is not my therapist who's supposed to make me feel good about me. I got to figure that out on my own. But my child needs me to be on his side and his, her approval. So when something is happening that is really undermining that relationship and you're feeling angry, I think the most important thing is to really try to tune in what is going on in their lives. You're feeling angry. I'm not in control. They're not listening to me. What do I do? Take a deep breath. 
This is not about you. You're being challenged. You're being delegitimized. You don't need them as your therapist. They're not your legitimizers, okay? We have to figure out our own self-confidence our, on our own, not through our kids. They're not here to compliment us. You know, some parents bend over backwards and forwards to get love from their children. That's not what they're here for. I don't need my child's approval. My child needs my approval. My child needs my love. Yes. Remember that. Remember the position you're in. So now you want to understand what does this child need now? What is my responsibility in order to help this child work through the issue that they're experiencing? I think that will help change the paradigm. Anger is really running away from understanding the real truth. Right? Take in a marriage, when a spouse, when a husband gets very angry at a wife, a wife gets very angry at a husband, it's a way of covering up and running away from the necessary conversation, which is, what is the pain that I am experiencing? What is the pain that you're experiencing? Think about what I'm saying. Awesome. Thank you. You're welcome. Wishing you all a beautiful, meaningful, and loving day. And may we tune in to the love flowing at every single moment so that we can transform exile into redemption. Thank you. This class is brought to you by the yeshiva.net. Please help us continue the classes. Make even a small contribution at www.theyeshiva.net slash donate.